Good afternoon, everybody. International Women's Day. I'm Nicole Petalides. I'm live in Times Square, and I'm thrilled that you're with us here. Um, this is a TD Ameritrade Network Schwab presentation, and we have pros in business and finance. And of course, there's no better day to feature our female guests, two of them that are extraordinary than International Women's Day. So it's my pleasure to be doing that. Um, I wanted to just start with the Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance. And when Barron's comes to my door on the weekends, I get so incredibly excited. I mean, call me a geek. I've been on Wall Street for over 20 years. I'll tell you about my history in a moment. But it comes, and the cover is the 100 Most Influential Women in Finance. So this is the third edition. And it reads like this. It says, women barely appeared in the pages of Barron's in the 1920s when the magazine was founded. And that's because they rarely appeared in the worlds of business and finance. And what a difference a century has made. And as we navigated through the COVID pandemic and what's going on now with our markets, women are shaping finance and economic policy. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, I'm paraphrasing what it says here is she's working on our U.S. economic recovery and tackling all kinds of um, structural changes that are happening. You have Citigroup's chief executive officer, Jane Frazier, who's undertaking a dramatic overhaul of one of the world's biggest banks. And Aileen Lee of Cowboy Ventures is identifying promising early stage companies and leading a movement to draw more funding to female founders. Um, I just think that, and I won't read Barron's to you, you could read it yourself, but the point is that these women are shaping modern finance as we know it. They're leading it into the future. Our own Liz Ann Saunders of Schwab is on this list, and rightfully so. We just had her on on the network. So it just shows you how exciting um, women in finance really are, but still always a long way to go. That being said, uh, before I bring in the guests, I want to introduce our guests so you can stand by and be excited for them, as am I. Ellen Wald, PhD author of Saudi Inc., and president of Transversal Consulting. She's an expert in all things oil. She talks about her book, Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power, is all about these massive oil reserves. And now, on this day, where the U.S. just banned oil imports from Russia, all things related to energy, um, there's no better day to have had her. This, as Barclays just called for $200 a barrel, and Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, $175 a barrel. These are, are obviously levels. The, the level we're at now is a 14-year high. And so I'm looking forward to a great conversation with her. And then Shana Sissel is going to be with us, founder um, and president of Banrian Capital Management. Uh, she is just incredible. Her underscore, her name and Instagram is Finance Queen 2020, which I, I like because she is a director of investments, alternative investments. She's always looking for great ways to make money and has a lot of great ideas for us to discuss. So I think that is very. I just wanted to take a quick moment before I get to Ellen to just tell you about myself and um, really note that I. Um, on International Women's Day as we celebrate that. I, I, with these conversations, these are gonna be very casual because we wanna empower and inspire everybody listening, every single person listening. And I'm so thankful to all of you for listening. So thanks for being here. Um, we'll talk about a lot of the hot topics and such, but you know, instead of trying to be influencers or do something um, in that realm, we really wanna have great conversations, teach and learn from one another, which I think is really key. So as a kid growing up, 
who knew this would be my job, right? I think I surprised everyone because I had immigrant parents. I had a great stepdad, but immigrant parents. I was very, very blessed, a lot of love. But all the adults in my life were all entrepreneurs. My mom founded a newspaper. I had a lot of great role models, but I was into sports and dance and theater. A fun fact, I played Division One soccer in college, um, and I took communications and business. And who knew this would be my role? But after that, I worked so hard at News 12, Larchmont, Mamaroneck, Cable Television, Fox 5, New York 1, CNN, a talk share. And then I got a real deal job at Dow Jones. And I was so excited to have a full-time job there. And then to CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business, and now the TD Ameritrade Network. So the whole road was one of perseverance. I had a lot of no's. Right. And you say, why not? Why not? You're too green. You're this, you're that. You're you're not informed enough, you know, and people stand in the way. And there's a lot of people who say yes and do nothing. But if someone says no, you ask why and you continue to work. And so I worked overnights and weekends and double shifts. And I'm thankful to my family who supported me through that um, in every way, shape or form. But I think the one line I always used to get was you can't be on live television because you don't have experience on live television. Oh, well, how do you get that? So, you know, and so fast forward, there's one person who takes a chance on you and then, you know, 20 years pass. So I've been on Wall Street for my career, most of my career with all of those business networks. And so with that, um, I have a lot of gratitude every day. I'm so thankful to everybody I work with, with have. I try to stay very present. I don't look in the past, future, over um, market perspective. And I do want to kick this off as we um, look at women in business and have some great conversations. So our very first guest is Ellen Walsh, PH author, Saudi Inc. President, Transversal Consulting. And Ellen, uh, I'm hoping you can hear me now. Yes, I'm here. Hi, it's a pleasure oh, to be here. Thank you for wonderful. having me. Oh, Ellen, I'm so glad. So that being said, Ellen, you're, you're a frequent guest on our network, and what better day to have you on than um, what's going on here with oil? I mean, people are fighting inflation at the grocery store, uh, everywhere they shop, but of course, when they go to fill up their gasoline takes. Um, just quickly, just give us a you know a, a minute or two about how you got into this. So people understand your background. I know you were an educator. In fact, one of your somebody actually said you were over-educated for a particular <laughs> job, but I know you were with the Bush and Obama administrations in some way, shape, or form. A quick, so people understand yeah. who you are, Ellen, please. Yeah, sure. Um, that's that's a great question. I think I kind of come from this uh, at maybe, maybe a non-traditional um, way. So I'm, I'm actually a historian by training. I um, have a, a PhD in history, uh, and I did my uh, dissertation about American and British oil companies that operated in the Middle East in the 1940s and 50s. And um, <clears throat> I briefly taught Middle East history um, at the University of Georgia before I left academia and uh, really kind of dealt into the more current energy scene. Um, I started writing uh, some um, for some various publications, and I, um, I also wrote uh, uh, um, some chapters about um, more um, current energy policies of, of definitely of, of the Bush uh, and Obama administrations and, and assessing them. And so that's how I really got into uh, energy and, and oil markets. And uh, it's really kind of hooked me and, and been kind of my obsession ever since. And uh, I did uh, found my own uh, consulting firm, Transversal Consulting, where we do a um, variety of different kinds of, of projects. Um, we do mostly energy and geopolitics. And um, 
we we do independent analysis, um, bespoke reports, things like that. Right. Um, we do a lot of writing and communications uh, for um, financial firms as well. And uh, I did write this book, Saudi Inc., uh, which is based in part on my research, but really looks at um, the development of the Saudi oil industry and, and brings it up to, um, you know, yesterday, you could say. And um, I, I really think I have the, the privilege of kind of following that along uh, since since then. And uh, I've really also just want to say that I have been so uh, impressed with not just the other women that I found in this industry, but also the men. I know academia probably has a, uh, and, and teaching has this aura of being friendly to women, but it's actually not. And um, I found that uh, things are actually a lot more um, progressive, you could say, in the finance sector. And, and I'm glad ways. to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. So I have a lot of key questions for you, um, you know, some more in depth than others. Um, I'll start with everybody's going to the gasoline pump. They cannot believe it. It's going higher at the moment, right? How high can it go? What should people think or prepare for? I have a lot of questions for you, but maybe some quick answers for some of these because I've got them lined up for you, Ellen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, me too. I think I've seen um, gasoline prices, you know, I've, I've seen them, you know, driving by, you see them rising as you drive by, uh, you know, replacing that the three with a four or the four with a five. And uh, that's, that's pretty stunning for most people considering that we've had low gasoline prices for several years now, uh, kind of almost forgotten back to, to 2012, I think it was, when gasoline prices were, the, the national average was last uh, over the $4 mark. Mm -hmm. um, and now things are moving so quickly, it's mostly being determined by rising oil prices. Um, you know, we're in a situation now where we're already in a, in a somewhat tight oil market situation and the speculation and the constant shifting situation with Russia, right. with new oil bans, is just uh, causing some really wild swings in the market, um, particularly increases. And, um, you know, I think there, there's really no telling how high prices can go. But we also have to remember that um, 2000, that uh, 2022 is not the same as 2012. And um, our inflation rate is a lot higher now. And so that's also acting on prices. So the shock, it, it's kind of creating even more of a shock, even though um, prices may not be as high in terms of, of absolute worth as they were back then. And so with that, you said, uh, you know, they're likely to go higher is what I got out of that. Yeah. I remember being a teenager in Cyprus where my parents were both born and the, the lines and five, six dollars a gallon. And so I think people mentally are preparing for higher prices ultimately, particularly as Barclays has a $200 target and Bank of America and Goldman Sachs have 175 These are possibilities, right, yeah. for a barrel. Um, we just saw $130 a barrel. So I think the takeaway here is without focusing on how much it's going to be, I think we all just need to accept it's going higher. As President Biden said today, as they're banning all these imports from Russia and saying that they're hitting the main artery of Russia's economy in doing so. Do you agree it's hitting the main artery of Russia's economy? And it's also the White House has been reaching out to Venezuela, um, which is a longtime foe, right? Uh, maybe Iran. What's the... Um, What's the takeaway? So if I went to a cocktail party, I don't want to get too in-depth, but it, it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, I would say that um, there's – I would say that the U.S. ban is probably the, the least uh, of all of the, the actions 
the, the U.S. Uh, ban on imports is the, the least among all the actions to, to affect Russia, because we in the U.S. don't actually import all that much Russian crude oil or Russian products. Um, and so I don't think that, that our decision to stop importing Russian products is going to have a huge effect on our uh, the availability of oil in the United of gasoline in the United States or on Russia. However, um, it does seem to have kind of set off a potential cascade effect. So um, shortly after the U.S. announced its ban, the U.K. announced that it's going to wind down um, imports of Russian oil and oil products by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And the U.K., uh, that's a much more significant part of the U.K. economy. And so that will have a larger effect on Russia, potentially. Um, however, you know, they're giving themselves a much longer time frame to wind that down. Um, you know, and if we do see more uh, producers, uh, sorry, if we see more um, importers deciding not to, yeah. you know, to, to ban it, then it may have more of an effect on Russia's economy. But we do also have to remember that China is a very big purchaser of Russian uh, Russian crude. There's a pipeline that goes directly there, so they don't have to worry about you know, tankers and insurance and those kinds of things. And there is a, there's a potential for Russia to redirect some of that crude um, that's you know not being purchased by Europe to China. Okay. Um, and and so so that could that that they're not completely cut off here. I want to talk about some of the alternatives. Uh, we saw a lot of the solar companies jumping. Everybody can't stop talking about electric vehicles. Uh, can you start with EVs? Maybe move it to yeah. solar. Um, when you, as a pro in the business in the world of oil energy, you know, push it forward five, ten years. How are we going to be living differently? So I think one of the reasons that we saw jumps in uh, solar companies and, and EV companies is because, uh, particularly because the Biden administration has made statements that they see this as a good reason to, uh, you know, increase and, and kind of push forward plans to expand these industries. And so there's a lot of um, hope that um, that will include government funding, government programs, um, because that would definitely help boost these industries in the United States. When it comes to EVs, part of the problem is that they're they're quite expensive still. Yes, the prices come down from what it was, but they're still very expensive. And a lot of people still see them as not really a viable alternative for what they need a uh, an internal combustion engine to, to do for them. So the battery life isn't long enough. They live in cold climates that affect right. the, the efficiency. And so and, or if they can't afford gasoline, how are they going to afford a $70,000 electric vehicle? So yeah. these are issues that, um, you know, if we want to push forward with EV adoption are going to have to be addressed. Uh, in addition to that, we're seeing um, some issues in terms of availability of the minerals and rare earths that are needed to produce batteries and things for these EVs, because a lot of those also come from Russia. So it is possible that that these cars will get even more expensive. Another issue is also um, charging these vehicles. We need to expand our um, and, and fortify our electricity grid because if a lot of people are going to be charging their vehicles every night, then that's going to put much more strain on. Our, our electricity grid and on the power systems. And a lot of places do run, you know, are getting electricity also from fossil fuels. Now, right. it's not the same as gasoline um, that comes from Russia. So it, it's, it, you know, if, but um, these fuels are also more expensive. We're seeing electricity prices rising all across uh, the United States uh, as well. So it may not be the kind of um, 
uh, cheap pans, uh, panacea that people think it will be. Um, solar companies, I'll, I'll okay, move let on me, to that. Okay, you can you just give me a quick thought on that? Sure. Because I, as I said, I have a lot of questions yeah. for you. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why, you know, th- why those stocks jumped. Um, and one of the interesting things, though, is that um, American solar companies could actually really use uh, a push forward because there is demand to put more solar energy in. The problem is that Chinese uh, solar panels have really kind of cornered the market in the U.S. And, um, you know, if we can can push for, um, you know, for people to use more U.S. produced ones, I think that would be a, a huge benefit to uh, to that industry here. Right. Um uh, I, just a quick thought, as um, Mike Pence was out saying reopen Keystone or get back to pushing out some of the oil that we're making here at home, I do not want to talk politics. I do want to get a pro's vision on our oil production yeah. at home. Maybe just a quick sentence on that, because I do want to find out about some of your experiences, yeah. too. So um, when it comes to the Keystone XL, I hope we're talking about the Keystone XL yes. pipeline, which was yes. not, which is the, the Keystone XL pipeline is a dead project. It's, it was never built. It's not going to be built. Um, the company that was going to build it, TC Energy, is, has no interest in building it. I think that we need to kind of admit that and, and admit that this project is, is done with. However, that's not the only pipeline uh, that we have between the U.S. and Canada. And I do think that the idea of it raises a good point that we um, should have a lot more cooperation and integration uh, between the U.S. and the Canadian energy systems, not just oil, also electricity transmission right. um, for hydroelectric plants, for example. So there's a lot that can be done that can um, to, to better integrate our systems that will bring costs down for everyone. And we also had, uh, you know, down near the Gulf, too, right? Wasn't there a lot going on down there? And that was sort of all halted, too, right? Yeah, exactly. And and so um, there's, you know, in terms of, of oil production, there is definitely, you know, we, we can be producing more oil. Oil production has been very sluggish. I think there's there's a lot that can be done to um, incentivize greater oil production uh, that isn't being done currently. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it, you know, I think is due to politics, but some of it is, you know, our problems with supply chain issues um, and our problems with financing. And these kinds of, of issues could be ameliorated, perhaps with uh, some assistance from the government. But, you know, some of them uh, may not be able to, to be things that the government can affect. And, um, right. you know, some you know, financiers may have to just decide, look, we think this is a worthwhile enterprise for, you know, because we want to help defeat Russia. It's, you know, it's, it's a hard call to make. Without a doubt. And we have, and the sanctions are on and in place, as you noted um, earlier, we'll see whether or not other countries get on board with doing something similar to what the U S and the UK have now begun to do. And it may hit them harder, as you noted, because we don't bring in as much um, from Russia as some of the other companies. I mean, we know that General Electric, Coca, Pepsi have been joining in and suspending Russian operations and McDonald's and Starbucks. Um, and so, you know, that's what's going on there overall. Last but not least, I just wanted to ask you if you have advice for women in finance, women in, you know, trying to open their own businesses. Uh, you tell them, and this really, I say women, but it almost feels it really should be generalized because this goes for every single person who's trying to work on and do something new. Yeah, um, I, I would say my, the biggest piece of advice that, that I don't undersell yourself because I think there's a tendency, especially amongst women, to um, you know, undersell yourself or think that you maybe can't command a certain, um, a certain rate for consulting or a certain amount of money for, for a project or a certain salary. And um, 
you know, if you if you don't ask for it, you definitely won't get it. And uh, so you really just have to go into it with, yeah, maybe it sounds high, but just go in and be confident and with the understanding that you, you know, you can always negotiate and, and go back. But if you don't ask for what you feel is worth, other people won't take you seriously. And so, um, so you, you really shouldn't undersell yourself, know your worth and project that. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I was looking through Forbes and they actually recently gave former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton an award here on International Women's Day. And, and she was saying you have to feel you're doing your best and don't let anybody steal yourself by undermining your confidence and what you're capable of doing, that you can change paths and don't be afraid to take risks. I also was reading about Barbara Corcoran, who talked about, you know, how other people in real estate didn't take her seriously. And in the meantime, she kept expanding her businesses. And and then when they finally did take her seriously, it was sort of too late. So um, I think it is interesting when we see how people take the chances and know their worth. I think it's an important yeah. part. Um, any final thoughts here for folks as we're wrapping it up? I'm, I'm glad you were able to chat with us. But, you know, anything else that's on your mind, obstacles or exciting ideas um, yeah, I think that um, there's always something new, you know, around the bend. And what I set out to do, even when I was starting my company, isn't really what it necessarily looks like now. And so um, be prepared to, not, I know the, the word is pivot, but be prepared to accept new and exciting things that you may never have thought of. Right. And what's with the Boston Celtics? See, I only <laughs> really know a lot about the Knicks because I'm a New York girl. So I saw uh, your profile, Boston Celtics. Yes, I um, I did my uh, graduate school work in Boston, uh, during which time I became an avid Celtics fan, uh, because that was the year that they uh, won their most recent uh, national championship. I'm a huge, huge Kevin Garnett fan. So, oh, how uh, fun. There, there you go. All right. That's good to know as the Knicks squeezed out a game, a, a game winner last night. My goodness. After we've been having a hard time. So I will say thank you so much, Ellen Wald. It is wonderful to speak with you. I appreciate your insight into the world of energy and all of these companies. I know that these big companies have been working so hard to move to alternatives and Exxon and Chevron alike. I mean, it's not just the electric vehicle companies. I know they've all been working to do exactly that. We'll have you back on the show soon. Ellen, thank you. Ellen Wald. Thank you. PhD author, Saudi Inc. and president, Transversal Consulting. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much. So I'm thankful that Ellen was able to join us. I have another great guest lined up for you. In a moment, I'm going to introduce um, Sheena Sissel, who's standing by. Um, I have some fun facts about her, too, and I'm sure it's going to be a great conversation. But in the meantime, as I'm waiting and I was going through all the things about women and, and we just really want to be there and we look back to Susan B. Anthony and, and also Jane Austen and Frank, Maya Angelou. I was going through all Helen Keller and um, Kim Campbell, who was the first prime minister of Canada. There are just so many incredible women who were groundbreaking. Rosa Parks, who really just broke through and didn't, didn't take no and, and kept their vision in line. And um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, Justice Ginsburg said, women in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. And so I'm really never, I never say all or nothing or never, but it certainly seems that that seems on point to me um, that women should be included. And we're talking about gender parity, equality of all races, of all people. And my last thing is Vera Wang. And she actually was talking about ageism and that, um, you know, you grow older each day in your life and you're learning more and that ageism is even old fashioned. And of course, we know her as a designer and fashion icon. So 
women breaking ground every single day. So that being said, I wanted to turn our attention now to our next guest, an exciting guest, and that is Shana Sissel, founder and president at Bannery and Capital Management, director of alternative investments. These are all the things that I was seeing on your background. In fact, Miss Illinois, I can't wait to hear more from you. Shana, to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Nicole. I really appreciate it. So um, before I get into all your thoughts on finance and investing, um, first, I just wanted to hear how you got this and a little bit of your background and um, how you broke ground doing exactly this. Sure. So much like you, I'm actually a first generation American. Um, My mother was born and raised in Ireland. Um, My paternal grandparents are both from Poland and came to this country at a very young age. uh, when World War One broke out. Uh, so I think technically their documents say that they're Russian, but uh, they did not like that, uh, to be told that. They, they Polish through and through. And I come from a, a very baller family. My dad is a retired police officer in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts. So I share a love for the Celtics uh, with Ellen. And um, yeah, my mom was an inner city school teacher. Uh, and my sister's a 911 dispatcher. And my, and my grandparents all worked. So I come from a long line of women who at a time didn't work. They worked. Uh, my, my mother's mother was a maid and my dad's mother worked in a roller skate factory, you know, the wheels on the roller skates. Uh, so uh, working in the world of finance was not really something that was ever seen as a possibility for me. It was not something I was ever exposed to. Um, I have a very odd picture of me at like four years old with a Wall Street Journal, which I think my parents just took because it was amusing to them. Not actually ever got the journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so finance was not where I thought it was going to go. I, I come from a avid sports family and my undergraduate degrees in sport management. Uh, so I actually wanted to be a sideline reporter uh, on ESPN and, and actually worked for the New England Sports Network right out of college. I got into finance completely by accident. Uh, I uh, needed a job uh, and uh, just happened to uh, interview at Morgan Stanley to become a financial advisor and very quickly fell in love with the markets. Realized I didn't necessarily want to be a financial advisor, but I did really enjoy following the markets, investing in the markets, understanding company fundamentals, building portfolios. And, and that's sort of what led me down the career path that I've been on. The alternatives thing is, is sort of the, the story of my career has been about timing. Um, everything I, I sort of built my career on has always been about taking advantage of trends um, that were kind of happening at a time. So I took a job working for a hedge fund uh, run by Russell Investments in 2007, just July of 07, so just prior to the beginning of the financial crisis. And it really opened my eyes to a, a part of the market I knew very little about, but which was so important to the plumbing. Uh, and I, I got such a respect for the private markets and the role that they play and also uh, how they can be canaries in the coal mine of, of potential market issues uh, long before the broader public markets uh, even know what's going on. And then that is also the time that the SEC made some changes to the 40 Act, right. which led to the proliferation of liquid alternatives. So I took that as an opportunity to, to really start to talk about the importance of alternatives in portfolio construction. And that has kind of become my thing ever since. Right. And so you're looking at other ways to do this and alternative investments. Um, let's just start with the general market, because I think people, as they get each day's news and 
2022 started out with a very tough January, and then people thought we would bounce back in February, which we did not. There were a lot of concerns about higher rates that are coming from the Fed, most likely, right? We're beginning with the next week's meeting on the 16th of March. Inflation that is running hot. We'll get a CPI print um, this week as well. So what do you tell them? Because every time we try to bounce back, instead, we just saw four weeks of selling, and you have the NASDAQ, for example, in correction territory. Um, mm -hmm. What are they asking you, and what do you tell them? Well, it's funny because I feel like I spent most of 2021 trying to explain why there was never a correction and that we were due for one. And the market is a great way of humbling people um, in that, you know, you expect something to happen, never gets the timing right. Uh, but eventually you end up being right because markets are going to behave like markets. Uh, they're really driven by human behavior. And um, with high inflation, uh, with the geopolitical environment uh, and a whole host of other factors, the market correction made sense. You had a large rotation happening. You had years of um, those growth stocks really outperforming. Uh, and, and so you started to have this shift that started happening in 2021 to more of the cyclicals, the energy names, all the names that performed horribly for several years. Uh, and, and so the sell-off is not surprising to me. It's not even the magnitude of it. Right. Uh, you know, even just taking the geopolitical aspects out of it and taking COVID out of it, uh, midterm election years tend to be very volatile uh, in general. Uh, so, you know, a lot of different factors that uh, have kind of pushed the markets in this direction. I think um, all of those things coming together has kind of led to what we're seeing. But I don't see the, the sell off uh, as a negative. It was probably needed uh, given how hot the market ran for as long as it did. Hmm. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. I mean, they were waiting for a pullback because we've had such an incredible run really since 2009 after aggression. And some people don't even remember 2008, 2009. And they certainly, if they don't remember that, they're not going to remember the tech boom and bust of 2000. But um, it's interesting. So one of my guests today sent me a historic art. It goes all the way back. I, I see Pearl Harbor on here. I see um, it, it looks to it appears to me to go back to the 1940s, but saying that there's only three geopolitical events in 80 years where you didn't make your money back in nine weeks. And so the point is that even with sell-offs, ultimately, and this is why they always say don't do it emotionally and don't rush to take your money out and don't try and time the market, because most of the time um, you may miss the best days of all, right? Absolutely. And in fact, I I've seen a very similar Geopolitical events tend to impact the markets more on the threat of the event and not the actual event occurring. Uh, I think we have some dynamics in today's market that um, probably are um, causing the sell-off to be um, more pronounced and last a little longer than, than one might expect because of the impact of already high inflation being higher and energy and commodities uh, having impact in such a way as a result of, of the countries involved in, in, in this war. So, you know, it is true, though, you can go back in history. Um, typically, uh, wars are good for markets. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I'm simplifying this a bit, but World War II is what got us out of the Great Depression. Uh, they tend to um, be good for markets. And so a sell-off as a result of these shorter term supply dynamics as it relates to commodities and energies and inflation right. is to be expected. But geopolitical events typically do not have long-term impact on market returns. And so these are really opportunities to invest 
and I always see these as opportunities to invest uh, because the market goes up more than it goes down. And if the market doesn't go up again, we have much bigger problems. Right. Uh, and so these should be uh, opportunities to invest in good companies that uh, are long term going to be great investments uh, to help you grow your, your portfolio. So that being said, um, you know, obviously March, April we, in 2020, we saw this big sell off. And, you know, I had traders who were saying, I'm watching this level, I'm buying at this level. And, and that's to your point that, you know, when you get these big dips or you get opportunities, if you really like something and you do your homework and you want to get in. And so that brings me to the point that you have certain names such as NVIDIA, Marvell and Roblox that are names that you like. And um, from what I understand, correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong. Nope, that's um, correct. You know, and I, and I keep an eye on you know, fund disruptors and things like that, or tech or FANG or Tesla or the ARC fund. Um, there's a lot going on. So what do you tell folks they want to make some money? Are you adding to some positions on pullbacks? Yeah, so I feel like your portfolio should have some tactical aspects to it. And um, when I look at stocks, I'm looking at them from the tactical perspective of what's going to do well at certain times in the economic cycle, but also stocks that are going to win in the long run. And so a name like NVIDIA is one that I've followed my entire career. And there has never been a case where you haven't been able to buy NVIDIA on a dip and made a lot of money. Um, And this is a stock that I feel really strongly. It's so integral in so much of the innovation that's happening, whether you talk about EV or AI or anything, their chips are are really important components to all of those things. and so NVIDIA is a name that I'm always watching for opportunities to buy. Marvell is another example of that. Roblox is a name that I think is really interesting. I know my son plays it more than he should, and I spend mm-hmm. more money buying him Robux than uh, I like. It's actually his allowance. That's his form of allowance. He doesn't want money. He wants Robux. Um, so I understand the appeal of the platform, and it is traditionally targeted a younger audience, but it, it's kind of ahead of a ahead of a lot of other of these quote-unquote metaverse players um, in developing uh, this following and this user base who are young and getting older. And so much like I had a thesis on Apple back in like 2005 or 2006 that Apple was going to be an enormous player decades to come because there was a younger uh, consumer who really was using Apple products and starting to be part of this ecosystem that didn't really exist back then because that was right before the iPhone um, was launched. Um, and sure enough, you know, back then, everybody's PC was a Dell or an HP or, you know, right. n- name your traditional PC. And there was a whole younger generation that was buying Macs. Uh, they had the, if you recall, um, I'm totally aging myself, but the TV show Felicity, um, they had Macs as product placement, those big... Um, um, like colorful see-through Mac like monitors as product placement. And it was the cool thing to do. But then as the ecosystem developed, it just seemed like a no brainer that as that generation, those millennials um, grew, they would want to continue to have loyalty to the Apple platform. And that totally came to fruition. I can see a similar trend potential with, with a company like Robux. So they've had even prior to the sell-off, they had some fundamental problems that were making the stock attractive, and this has just made it more attractive for me. Anything else jump out at you, whether it's drug stocks or the meme stocks or that ARC fund or Tesla or any of the FANG names? Anything so, else that you think uh, really has some potential in the long run? So right now, for as far as potential, those are really the names. I, I'm not big at 
like I, I cast a small net of companies that have very high conviction on as opposed to I a see. large net like Kathy does. Yeah. Um, so those are really like the four or five names I feel very strongly about. And then I'm being more tactical and, and thinking about economic cycle and current trends and other positions I have in, in portfolios right now. Yeah. And you know what? To the kids, too, I think can sometimes be an indicator for um, which way and what things are really working. For example, if my, you know, I have two teenagers, they go to Chipotle. Um, by the way, I had to do a lot for Fortnite or whatever. I don't know. I kept seeing Microsoft charges. And yeah, so I'm with you. I'm fully understanding that. But Snapchat was their way they were communicating or, you know, as I said, Chipotle or Nike or McDonald's. These were this is what they were using. And it was really evident to me that um, they ultimately that's what they like. Just a final thought here that, you know, any advice to younger gals or um, first of all, the Miss Illinois thing is, is that what you were, Miss Illinois? I was Mrs. Illinois, and Mrs. Illinois. I will try to make Exciting. this a very short story, but I got involved in pageants when I was a teenager because I grew up in a, a kind of a rough city, uh, and I didn't have the best, you know, the best crowd I was with. My dad, being a cop, was mortified, so he enrolled me in a modeling school, and I got recruited to compete in a pageant, and it just exposed me to people uh, that were very driven and very accomplished and really had big dreams and goals and is nothing I'd ever seen before. Plus, I liked getting dressed up in gowns and putting on makeup and having my hair done. I'm, I'm girly that way. Uh, so I got involved in pageants from that. And I, I really don't believe I would be where I am today without pageantry. Um, you know, there are a lot of women in our industry that actually started off in pageants, uh, believe it or not. Um, sure, I agree with that. They tend to be extremely ambitious Um and driven women um, that tend to compete in that forum. And so um, it's always been something that has encouraged self-improvement and constant self-awareness. Um, so it's something that I have always found has made me better in all aspects of my life. So yes, I have competed in pageants. I was Mrs. <laughs> Illinois a couple of years ago and I've held other titles. I was Miss Rhode Island Teen America a million years ago. Uh, so that has been a world that I've been involved in a long time and it really has helped me uh, be successful in other aspects of my life. And I agree with you. And I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to rush you in those stories because those really are the foundation, at least in part to who you are. I know your dad was a bodybuilder when I was looking through that. So you had health and fitness in, in your life, but ultimately perseverance and discipline and all that to become successful. Um, and to your point, I think a lot of um, people or women or people in in my career in this exact role that I'm doing are all college athletes because they understand the discipline that's involved. They like to win. They like the drive. They like the team, they like, you know, the circuit training sort of life that on and push and that don't give up until it's done sort of mentality. Um, and what's the Hawkeyes? I see that in your notes here. What's that? Tell yes. Me, is that uh, part of your history? Is that Iowa? <laughs> Actually, I'm an Iowa fan by uh, marriage. My ex-husband went to Iowa and um, became a massive Iowa Hawkeye fan um, through marriage because I grew up in New England. I grew up in Worcester. There is no college football in New England. And if you are from New York, there's really no college football in New York either. So when you have an opportunity to be exposed to like real big time college football, and I'll argue with anyone who wants to like, bait me about right. Big Ten versus the SEC. But I, I do think Big Ten football is special. And um, having the opportunity to, to really get to see that from the inside was special to me. And we took a lot of trips to Iowa City. My son, one of his first words was Herky and Hawkeyes. And to this day, if we drive by anybody who has an Iowa Hawkeye 
sticker or a flag hanging from their house, like he will yell Hawkeyes at the top of his lungs <laughs> at six years old. So it, it's Why part not? of the DNA now. <laughs> It's so much fun. It's great to speak with you, Shana. Thank you so much for your time today on International Women's Day and giving us your background and your goals and um, expertise in finance, of course. Shana Sissel, founder and partner at Band Capital Management. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. So it was great to speak with Shana and Ellen today. And I want to thank all of you for joining me here. Um, I appreciate it. This is my very first Twitter spaces and it was exciting. We did a lot of prep trying to figure out how exactly how to do it. And I think that's part of our goal is learning how to do every single thing as the world develops. We have to continue to keep growing ourselves, but just continue to be positive and assertive and grateful, unafraid. Keep your faith and don't look back. Don't look forward. Just be present and go get them. So I really appreciate everybody being with me today. Thank you very much. I'm Nicole Petalides. I will catch you tomorrow on the TD Ameritrade Network at 11 a.m. for Trading 360 and 2 p.m. for the watch list. Thank you, friends, for being with me today and have a beautiful, blessed evening. <laughs>